podcast. I'm Kat Hughes, I'm a research officer with Middletown and I'm also autistic. In this episode I chat to Peter Vermeulen about his theories around prediction and autistic experience. We also talk about how individual person-centered approaches can have a positive impact for everyone. We spoke at the Middletown conference so when you hear Peter referring to Sue he's talking about the brilliant researcher Sue Fletcher Watson. You can hear an interview with her on the podcast from a couple of weeks back. I started by asking Peter to explain something that he talked about in his presentation, prediction errors. Um, a prediction error happens when the brain receives information from the senses that is unexpected. Um, that could be, for instance, somebody touching you without you expecting the touch. That could be seeing something that you don't expect. Uh, it could be even a small thing that is missing where you expect it. That's a prediction error. And that is causing stress to the brain. Not necessarily stress in the terms that we used to, I'm stressed, but stress in terms of the brain has to work. Yeah, that makes sense. And how does that differ then in relation to autistic people and non-autistic people? Okay. Um, you know, your brain is not perfect in predicting the world, so prediction errors will come in with thousands and thousands every day. Um, the difference between autistic and non-autistic brains is that non-autistic brains tend to disregard the majority of those prediction errors and say, yeah, this is just noise. You know, the world is not perfect. There's a lot of variation in my sensory inputs. Um, so they disregard it, which means they can be quite relaxed. They do take in some prediction errors. Autistic brains tend to take almost every prediction error seriously which means every small thing that is unexpected to them leads to a surprise. So they're actually like constantly surprised, but if you're constantly surprised, that, that eats away a lot of energy from your body, and that leads to the experience of constantly being overwhelmed by sensory input. Um, and the technical definition is that autistic brains tend to be too precise in coping with those prediction errors. In your, your presentation even, you gave a, um, an example where there was someone, um, uh, there was one, one picture where someone had a, a full cup and a hand was sort of going towards it and another one where it seemed like it might be an empty cup and a hand was going towards it. And you were asking well, what, what's likely to be happening in, in one versus the other and in I presume most people would say that the full cup, the person is picking it up and then the other person is taking it away to wash it. And before you had talked about it, I immediately thought, oh, there's probably a little bit at the bottom of it. Or, you know, there's lots of other things that it could be. Whereas I think probably people would go with one. Would that be the difference between the two? Yeah, yeah you know, if, if your brain um, is hypervigilant and, and takes in a lot of prediction errors too seriously, the result is that you will develop very precise hyper-specialized models. And that's what we often see in autistic people then, when they try to predict, they also want to minimize prediction errors just as every brain, but they try to minimize by developing even more detailed and specific models like, but wait a minute, I don't see the bottom of the cup, so maybe there's still a little bit in it that she could drink as well. So it's not necessarily cleaning up. Well, the majority of the non-autistic people in the audience, they just went like, okay, that's coffee drinking. And they don't make the model so complicated. Um, in, in my book, Context Blindness, um, I said that non-autistic brains have the tendency to develop very slippery, vague concepts. Good enough is okay. And 
well, autistic brains, good enough. That doesn't fit very well with an autistic brain. It needs to be exact or precise. Um, and again, that leads to a lot of uncertainty because if you develop very precise models or very complicated ones, whew, you get a lot of prediction errors then to process. But every prediction error will lead to even more precise models or even a new, you know, a new sideway in your brain. You already saw three ways, drinking coffee. Well, it could also be that there is still a little bit coffee. Most people thought empty. But it could also be the full cup. Maybe it's already standing there from yesterday. So maybe she will clean up. That's very true. Yeah. You see? And we already have four scenarios in in an autistic brain. But most non-autistic brains, they wouldn't bother. It's good enough. It's good enough. (laughs) It will do. It's, It's a presentation. And okay, it's good enough. And then from a, a sensory perspective, how does that impact an autistic person? Yeah, well, if your brain is not satisfied with good enough and it needs to precise, the brain will then, and that's what the brain does when it is uncertain, it asks the senses to give more information. So and that ultimately will lead to sensory overload, a brain taking in too much information because it is uncertain and wants to feel more secure because that's what every brain wants to anticipate and feeling secure in the world. Autistic brains are no different than their needs. Uh, they are different in the process. They try to meet that need. Uh, non-autistic brains will tend to say, okay, sloppy is enough and good enough is okay. And then that makes me feel secure. Autistic brains tend to say, I can't do with vague things. That doesn't help me to feel secure. Mm-hmm. I need it more exact, precise. That's so interesting. And um, to take a, a sort of a, a, a different slant on, because I know you do lots of different work in lots of different places, um, you have something called the Happy Project as yeah. well, and I'd love to know a little bit more about that. The thing is that, um, indeed, it's all about feeling safe and secure and relaxed. So I think we cannot change the autistic thinking. We should not change the autistic thinking. And because it has its advantages, you know, when I go to security at the airport, I don't want security officers who have models of good enough. Certainly. I want them to be precise in scanning the luggage. Mm. I'm never angry at them when they take out my language because I think you're doing a good job. But the thing is that getting too much prediction errors leads in a lot of stress. And we cannot change the autistic thinking. We shouldn't, but we cannot. I would not know how you could change the brain in that way. But if we can make autistic people feel more safe, secure, and happy, automatically their need for security will be met. So their brain will not have the tendency to develop more precise models. Their brain will be happy with imperfect models because they feel relaxed. You can only live with imperfections if you feel well. As long as you're stressed, you want to control things. and So that's, during COVID, I got so many mails from parents, but also from autistic individuals being severely stressed. And we were all stressed in those days. And that was the time that I thought, okay, Peter, maybe you should focus on well-being then, rather, because I was planning to update my I'm Special book, which explains the diagnosis. But I think, come on, that's not what autistic people need. Information about autism, you can find it everywhere. All they need is... How, with a brain that works like this, how can I still feel comfortable and relaxed? So what I did then is, um, there are plenty of well-being strategies. 
from mindfulness to relaxation to breathing, but many of those things are not autism friendly. And what happy is, is okay, there's a need for security and safety and well-being. Um, let's take all those well-being strategies and see how can we make them autism friendly and that's what I do in happy. To give just one example, you know, for non-autistic people, if they are stressed, I'm reading a book right now that's written for non-autistic people about well-being and it says it's good for you to exercise twice a week, at least two hours. And make sure you do cardiac exercise, which means your heartbeat needs to go up. Yeah, that's not very helpful for an autistic person. Two times a week, is it in the morning, is it in the evening? What is cardiac? 80% um, of your Take your uh, 220 minus your 8 and then 80%. Okay, then we're getting more clear. So what I do is I make those things more concrete, but eventually what I do, and that's very typical for a happy plan, it ends up in a schedule. And too often I see schedules only being used to tell autistic people what they have to do in schools. Today you have to do this. Happy plan, the best plans, are the ones that have schedules for well-being. Today you're going to do that on that time, this place, this so long, and all well-being activities. So it's doing things because talking about well-being, what I'm doing right now is okay, but there are many autistic people. I'm thinking about the group with uh, younger developmental ages, the nonverbal group. You can't do psychotherapy with them, but they still need a brain that needs to be more relaxed. So what I do is then just working with the environment, saying, we're going to put all those activities in his or her schedule. And that's what happy is. All the friendly, well-being plans. That is gorgeous. But very structured and very concrete. Yeah. And to be honest, it sounds like something that literally everyone would benefit from. You I know? think so. Yeah. That's there right. are now parents who did it with, uh, where I made a plan for their child and who say, we're using it with his siblings as well now. And themselves, actually. And themselves. Yeah, that's what I do in the happy training when I do the live training in Belgium. It's two days. Um, I ask every participant, and often they're psychologists, coaches, also autistic people. Um, I tell the, the goal of this training is that you can make happy plans for other people, but in this training you will first make a happy plan for yourself. Very good. And there's two reasons. First of all, that's how they learn to work with the materials. The second thing is... Um, I'm convinced that you can only help other people if you have gone through the same experiences, if you do the same activities, because that experience will help you. But also, I think autistic people can only be helped by people who give a good model. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm you know, that's the. I always compare it with what they say in, in, in the aircraft. Put your own oxygen mask before you start helping other people. That's exactly what I do in the happy training. That's it, exactly. And I think it probably allows people to take that step back in terms of relating to the autistic people that they know. Yes, because what they discover is we're not that different, are we? Yeah. When it comes to needs, we're different in how our brain processes information, we're not different in needs. Yeah, that's really lovely. And, and that's, that's making a connection then. And then it also makes autistic people less distant. It's, it's not them anymore. It's, oh, we have the same needs. <laughs> yeah, because oftentimes I think people can sort of 
with all the, the best will in the world, want to kind of support an autistic person, but they're kind of going into it going, okay, I have this checklist and I've learned these things. And what do I, and it, it sort of takes the humanity out of it a bit. But that would, you know, if they're thinking of their own experience and how it can be so similar to an autistic person, that's really lovely. Yeah, that's why I always, even when I explain about the predictive mind, saying this is not typically autistic, this is happening in every brain, however the difference is, I'm not saying that everybody's a little bit autistic. I hate that one. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying is these experiences are human experiences. The difference is that in an autistic brain it's 24-7. Uh, um, and, and often something that is out of control of the person who wants to be different and sometimes um, suffering from their own brain, <laughs> processing things differently. So... But it makes it more human if we normalize those things. Yeah. I think we should normalize a lot of these things. Um, and normalizing is then leading straight into what Sue talked about, neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. We are all different brains, but the needs are very basic human. And how, I suppose that, that kind of brings me on to my, my last question for you. How have you seen things change over the years in terms of sort of attitudes to autism? Because it feels like there's recently been quite a big shift. It's a big shift. Yeah, it's a big shift. Um, but one that I have a bit of a double feeling. I think there's a more positive attitude, more an attitude of accepting differences. Um, but on the other hand, I see people now, it's, it's very strange to say, but I see a lot of neurotypicals now developing autistic ideas about autism, absolute models mm. that are too precise and not allowing the diversity even within the autistic group. Um, and then they heard, okay, you need to use visuals, so they, they, they hang out a lot of visuals and then they think it's autism-friendly. No, not necessarily. So the thing what we're still missing, I think, is, and I was very happy to hear Sue talk about that too this morning is that sit down with the individual okay knowledge about autism is important a positive attitude is important but then sit together because what is autism friendly for one person is not necessarily autism friendly for the other one so it's it's curiosity about the person that is still a bit lacking there's a lot of curiosity about autism now which is good but it kind of overshadows the need for being curious for that unique individual Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you want to know more about Middletown, you can find us on Twitter at Autism Centre or on Facebook or Instagram at Middletown Centre for Autism.